0: Thank you, Goma. Thank you to our musicians. And thank you to everyone who helped us set up this morning and get this place organised. We're not used to setting up anymore. I remember the, um, when we used to set up the church uh, at the school in the hall. You remember that? And I used to remember, one thing I don't miss is by the time you finish setting up, because I used to try to get involved as well, you end up sweating. So you're already you know, arriving at the, at the pulpit already half, you know half-sweating and uncomfortable that it makes... it. And I do appreciate the place where we, uh, where we meet. And I, I'm actually aware that this place is very echoey and you're you're having to probably concentrate twice as hard to understand what I'm saying. So I'll try and speak more slowly for some of you, um, for some people especially, um, and try to speak a bit more loudly. But the, the problem is the louder I speak, the more it echoes. So... There's a balancing act, and I'll try and keep it uh, under control. Um, while we're here, uh, let's, uh, let's begin uh, with a, the sermon. That's, we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. I'll get you to turn in your Bibles with me to that place. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2 says, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, a son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We just thank you that we can turn to it and trust it with our lives, indeed with our eternal souls. And we thank you that through this word we have come to know our saviour, Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself through these words. And we just pray this morning that as your spirit works within our hearts, Lord, that we'd be ready to receive the words that you would have for us. That you would use me simply as an instrument in your hands, that I might be a blessing to my brothers and sisters here and that your name might be glorified this morning. We do thank you for this time. And we thank you once again for your presence among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know this world is a fragile place, isn't it? Fragile. Um, it doesn't take much for people's worlds to turn upside down. And, and part of the problem that we have is that we live in a fallen world. Uh, and because we're living in a fallen world, and because sin is around, and because death and sickness and suffering and all those things are, are present because of man's fall... Um, Things always seem to be teetering on an edge, ready to fall over at any time. And, and you can't escape the news. You can't escape uh, 24-7 coverage of the coronavirus and you know, what's happening all over the place and which latest celebrity's got it now and which Prime Minister's got it and which whatever's got it. Um, it and we're going to hear more of it as the days go by. And I suspect that the numbers will increase in Victoria and in Australia more dramatically than what they are now. And we probably expect uh, that things will get tighter and tighter in terms of the rules and regulations they put in place as they try to actually stop the spread of it. Um, And people are fearing. And you can see it. You can see it in their lives. You can see it in the things they do. We we went yesterday, we went to to a cafe in Epping. How many people live in Epping, around where I live? We have two, three, we've got a few of us. Okay. So we went to the Coles in Epping. And um, we went there uh, to get a couple of stuff, things for church, uh, the coffees and that. And we, uh, we thought we'd grab a coffee at the uh, the a place called Garnies. And uh, we went in there and it was totally empty. No one having a coffee, which is very unusual for Melbourne. All right? For people not to be in a, co- a cafe in Melbourne is a very strange thing. But as we looked the car park at Coles was absolutely full and people were running in and out with trolleys full of food with, with quite, yeah, the, the, the looks on their faces uh, was quite uh, dramatic anyway. And we, we're seeing already people fight over things in, uh, in supermarkets and, uh, and being concerned about um, uh, how they might deal with this thing over the coming weeks and months but it looks like it's going to be months worth ahead of us. So people are naturally scared and they naturally thinking to themselves, well, if I have to get locked up in my house, I'm going to have to stock up on food and toilet paper and everything else that goes along with uh, having to live maybe by yourself for that time. Um, So for some of us, being at home for a couple of weeks is probably not a bad thing. Um, But people are concerned that they have families and that's understandable. So people are, um, are sort of going out and they're doing things they would not normally do. And for some people, it seems like their world is falling apart around them. And the world may be changing in terms of its, the, the response that it actually has to, the, uh, to a virus and to this threat, um, but people's lives, in general, are, are very routine, aren't they? People are used to doing the same things every week. And the fellow who was uh, with us, the owner of the cafe, sat down with us for a little while, and he says it's amazing to watch people. He goes, I watch people. He goes, I've been in this place for years, and I watch people come out in and out of coals normally, he goes, over the years, and they'll come out with, you know, one avocado, a couple of pieces of meat, you know what I mean, and uh, and maybe some bread or whatever it is, and a, and a thing of milk. He goes, and they're going their way. He goes, now people are running in and out with trolleys full of stuff. He goes, people that used to live on a day-by-day basis are now not living on a day-by-day basis. They're thinking about weeks and months ahead, um, and... There's a certain stress that might come with that when you have to adjust your life. but there are, pla- there are things in this place in this world that are much more dramatic than having to buy your stock for a few weeks and months. There are places um, in this world that have been ravaged by wars, by other diseases and, and by situations that um, we don't experience normally in this country. But what's interesting is that people's worlds are very, very fragile. Their own personal worlds are fragile. Um, and then when things fall apart around them, they have nothing to anchor them down in their lives. So they begin to despair. They begin to lose hope about what's coming up in the future. So there's a fear about what's coming up because I don't know. Um, it shouldn't be this way for the believer. We're affected by the same sicknesses, illnesses, government regulations and problems that everyone else has, um, but we shouldn't despair. We, we have a hope that the world does not have, and this morning's uh, sermon is about that. And while the world continues to grow in its fear about the future, um, we have an opportunity, one, to show stability and to show a hope that they don't have And it's an opportunity for us also to remind ourselves and to encourage one another that even during these times when things seem to be hectic and crazy, um, that our Saviour never leaves us and He's with us every step of the way. So I want to share with you this morning three times that Jesus mentioned a specific phrase in the Gospels and that phrase is, uh, is referred to in the verse that I've read you, son, be of good cheer. Three times Jesus uh, mentions those words in the gospel. So we're going to look at three of those this morning. So I'll get you to, to go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, which should sure already be there. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 as we look at this first place where Jesus um, speaks about or mentions the phrase, Be of good cheer, because in this world, people's good cheer can quickly turn. Sorrow and anguish and fear and trepidation. So, this morning we want to encourage each other uh, with these words of our Saviour. So, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose, and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marvelled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. So Jesus arrives at his hometown. And they bring to him a man who's paralysed on a bed. Now it says bed over there, but it's probably more like a, a stretcher. All right? It's a bed, but something you can actually carry a person around with. And so the man is, uh, has palsy, which means he can't move. Now, let's just clarify something a man living with the palsy in Jesus day is not leading a very good life what we would term quality of life here because that's where we're always uh, we're always looking to protect our quality of life um, if you had a quality of life scale someone with the palsy would probably rank 0.5 because It meant living with misery pretty much on a daily basis. It meant being totally dependent on your family to actually look after you. The pain experience would not be blunted by painkillers, Panadol, Nurofen, and everything else that we take that blunts the pain and and helps to get on with daily life. There is no painkiller in those days. Nor was there expert care from doctors, physicians, specialists, nurses. There was no prospect of recovery or improvement from a new drug that might come out or something else that might help. There was no TV to keep you distracted for hours on end. No wealth of books to read. No pastimes, or you probably have pastimes, but it'd be person-centred. People would have to be with you. Life, indeed, would be very difficult for such a person on a day-by-day basis. In addition to this, not only did you have the struggle of actually um, being totally dependent on your family, go through pain and suffering, and be um, uh, helpless... But in addition to this, oftentimes you were seen as a sinner by other people. You were seen as someone who God had judged because of their sin. People, especially the religious ones, were very quick to put you in a particular box. Do you remember the, there's a story of a blind man the Bible uh, speaks about where Jesus heals. And then, and then they, they, they bring him before the Sanhedrin, before all the religious people... And they said to him, who healed you? What happened to you? And he said, I don't know. All I know is that I, I, I was blind and now I see. And they said, well, who was it? And and um, and they said, well, what, 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 are you, what are you saying about it? And he said, well, I just know that he healed me. And their response to him was, you're a sinner. They accused him of being a sinner because he was born blind. So people in those days were very quick to judge other people with with physical disabilities and problems in their life, saying that, well, you're going through that because God is somehow judging you because you did something wrong. So imagine on top of the sickness that you've got, on top of the, 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 the um the, the hopelessness that you have, you have people actually saying, no you're a sinner, you're not part of us. You're ostracised at the same time. It's a bit like being a, a leper. So when this man is uh, brought to Jesus by it looks like either his family or his friends. Their desire would have been for Jesus to heal that man. Obviously, what well, they're not going to bring him to Jesus to say, hey, how you doing? They would have brought him to Jesus hoping because they would have heard of Jesus miracles that he could have healed him of this palsy because it would have put him back on a, on a, on a life that was. Hopefully back to normal. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't heal him immediately. Actually, Jesus looks at their faith and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Interesting, isn't it? He didn't heal him. He said, your sins are forgiven you. Be of good cheer, it says in verse Two, son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, the guy's still in his bed. Can't move. And Jesus is saying is what? Be of good cheer. Be happy. Because your sins are forgiven you. In fact, he hadn't been healed at all. And Jesus saying to him, be happy now. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, why would someone who's in that situation... Why should that person be cheerful? Why should he be of good cheer when he hadn't been healed? Because his sins had been forgiven. And that's the first time Jesus says to someone in the Gospels, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And that in itself should teach us something of great importance. It should teach us the single most important reason to be cheerful, to be of good cheer, to be hopeful and courageous is that our sins have been forgiven. That in itself, even without physical healing, should bring good cheer to a person's life. Because that represents an eternal gift to a person. It's something that's going to last me forever and ever. My sickness may last me may last for some years. Yes. I may go through some suffering for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years. But my sins forgiven will last me forever. There is a reason that every born again believer should be of good cheer. Is that our sins have been forgiven? Despite your other circumstances, despite your physical condition this morning and any other problem that you may see as something that's robbing you of your good cheer, remember always that nothing compares to having your sins forgiven and your relationship restored with God. And that's precisely what we have this morning. If you have nothing else in life, nothing. If everything else is taken away from you, if you have no money, no friends, no family, if you have no prospects for a future, you know what? If you have your sins forgiven and you have eternal life in Christ, then you have everything. Because really, in comparison, that is the most precious thing anyone could ever obtain in their lives. Nothing compares to having your sins forgiven and this is precisely what Jesus is teaching here this morning and what we have we must take note of the fact that these came to Jesus with nothing else to offer him either in payment for what he did they simply came with simple faith and Jesus looked at their faith and said see that faith I'm going to forgive you because of your faith in me and the same thing happened to us That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? Is that we simply had to come to Jesus with simple faith. Trusting in him. Trusting in who he is and what he did for us. And because of simple faith, Jesus says your sins are forgiven you. So we have been forgiven and saved this morning by the grace of God, which is something he just gives without deserving. Through simple faith. Coming to God with nothing but a broken spirit and a broken life. Because in the end, none of our lives are perfect. And you can only come to to God with a broken spirit, looking up to him. And isn't that a picture of us? That man on on that stretcher was really a picture of us before we were saved. Unable to save ourselves, unable to move spiritually, unable, with no hope. And he comes along, Jesus, and we put our faith in him. Still lying, still nothing to offer. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And if you have that this morning, you have everything. And you have every reason to be of good cheer. But the scribes were offended. They got offended at what Jesus said. Because, I mean... Who can forgive sins? Only God. That's good theology, actually. Only God can forgive sins because a sin is something that, you, that is a, a law that is broken which contravenes God's laws. So when you sin, you offend God. So who can forgive sins other than God himself? For a person to be cheerful... For a person to actually say, yes, my sins are forgiven and be cheerful about that, I need to believe in my heart that God's actually forgiven me my sins. And this is our belief. And it's summed up beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 with me. And this is the, the, the story, isn't it? Jesus is able to forgive the sins of this particular person because 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, To wit, to this end, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed to us, the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. And if God is in Christ, then, God, then Christ can forgive sins. Jesus challenged their thinking here. So these people looked at Jesus and they said, how dare you say that this man's sins are forgiven? How dare you? That that's only God can forgive sins. And Jesus challenged their thinking with an argument they couldn't even answer. Because if a man who had the palsy, who had no hope, could get up, take his bed and walk back home with it, which is an impossible thing, right? Then he could have his sins forgiven as well. And I'll tell you why. Because the physical act of taking up your bed and walking, when they believed that that was a judgment from God on that person, if he got up all of a sudden and could take his bed back home with him, it would mean that God's judgment had been lifted from that person. No argument. They couldn't have their argument both ways. They couldn't point to him as a sinner. And then this guy's all of a sudden standing up and, and taking his own bed home, uh, fully restored, and say he hadn't been forgiven. They lost the argument Completely, And so that's exactly what, it, what he did. The physical act of taking up your bed when you have that illness is a physical impossibility. And it was impossible for a mere man. But it was possible for God. Turn to Mark, Mark chapter 10 with me. Because we find that what is impossible with man is possible with God. If God can can cause a man with palsy to take up his bed and walk home with it, then that God can forgive that person's sins and you can be restored spiritually as well as physically. And Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 10, verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle... Than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And look at the response that his disciples give him. It says in verse 26. And they were astonished out of measure. Shocked. Saying among themselves. Who then can be saved? You know why? Because the belief was that if you were wealthy. Guess what? God had blessed you because with that wealth. And if you were poor, God had judged you because of your poverty. Do you get the way that people judged each other based on your circumstances? So here, Jesus is saying it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And this guy is saying, what? You mean not even the rich ones are going to get in? Not even the ones that God hasn't judged? No, Jesus says. But in verse 27, he says, And Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And that's what we see in the life of that man with the palsy. With man, it's impossible. Healing is impossible. Spiritual restoration is impossible. Forgiveness is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. And that is possible for every person. If Christ could do something physically impossible and he forgave the sins of the same man, then God's judgment was no longer upon that man. And Jesus had done the impossible and forgiven all his sins, which made Jesus God in the flesh. Jesus had authority, the same authority of God walking upon this earth. He had had authority over the laws of nature, which he created. And he had authority over to forgive sins for the sinner. The man was made spiritually whole because of simple faith, but then he was made physically whole without even asking for it. Simply because Jesus wanted to glorify God through that act. He didn't have to actually... You know, Jesus, when he forgave that man of his sins, he didn't have to heal him. He could have said, take him home now. He is fully forgiven of all his sins. He's going to die soon, but he's not always going to be with me. He didn't have to heal, but you know what? He's always got a, a purpose for everything. In this particular case, he needed to prove something. He needed to show something. He knew that they were going to come against him and say, how dare you, so you can't heal. And he needed to prove something. And it needed to be recorded in this word that we have today. It's what we're, 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 um, we're sharing it this morning. But the amazing thing is that he gave this fellow physical healing as well, which glorified God. Because you see the next verse, it says that they glorified God because of what had happened, right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 with me, because God is amazing in his generosity toward us. God did not have to do a tenth or a millionth of what he continues to do for us today. He did not have to do it, but he continues to bless us in so many ways. But you know why he does that? Because God loves to give. He loves. And, he, and in through that, he's going to be glorified because he just keeps on giving and giving and giving to people who don't deserve. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy... You got that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that, or for this purpose, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus how's that on display his kindness his love are going to be on display you know what he's going to display us we're going to be on display as evidence as the testimony of his amazing grace and his amazing love does that excite you this morning Because it excites me because God continues to give me stuff I don't deserve I am the same person I used to be. God's planted a new nature in me. God's given me, uh, God's given me an eternal uh, destiny. He's forgiven me all of my sins. But I still feel as if I'm the same person. Yes, he's working in my life. And yes, I'm, I'm, my heart's now pointed to him and my life is pointed in his direction. But I don't feel sometimes as if I'm any more worthy than I used to be before. Because there was nothing in me that actually made me more worthy. Do you understand? It's what he's given to me. It's what he now calls me that makes me worthy. Not something that somehow I've procured myself or earned myself. Because there's nothing I can earn that he hasn't given me out of his love. One day, these mortal, failing bodies that we have are going to put on immortality. Immortality. And we will be given new and perfect bodies, bodies that are not able to sin, that aren't infected with a virus and fall apart. Because that's essentially what we have. The reason we sin, the reason we are sinners, is because we've been infected with something and we can't shake it. There is no medicine around that can shake that. These mortal bodies have been corrupted. Which is why even though we, we walk around with them, the Bible says we have to keep on subduing them. Because they haven't been... We, God has not restored and redeemed our mortal bodies. You know what he's done? He's given us a brand new nature. And the promise is one day he's going to give us a brand new body. So like the, like the, the man of the palsy, he, 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 healed him, he, sorry, he, he forgave him all his sins first... And then he restored him after, right? So with us, it's a very similar way. God forgives us all of our sins, but he doesn't give me a new body straight away, does he? He hasn't made me to have hair again, has he? That's not at the top of my list. You know that, don't you? No, God, God forgives us, restores our relationship with him. And then he says, you know what? You're going to have to drive that old car around for a little while longer, you know what? I've got a really good one waiting for you. And it's perfect. It's brand new. It's got the new car smell and everything. All right? And that's what we're waiting for. And that's the promise. And God keeps all of his promises. So that's something we've got to look forward to. And that's why we have every reason to be of good cheer. Because we've had our sins forgiven. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've come to him and you're born again, then you have every reason to be cheerful. Because not only have you been fully restored with your relationship with him and you have no prospect of ever being lost again, is there's something waiting for you. And there's something waiting for you is a, is a new body. And the other thing waiting for you is we get to be with him for the rest of eternity. And that's what I'm looking forward to. Let's go to the next, the next point. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. So we should first be cheerful because our sins have been forgiven. That's the first thing we should be cheerful about and should override every other uh, thing that we have. But now we're going to look at why we should be cheerful in the midst of a turbulent world. So the world around us hasn't been sorted out. There's sin rampant everywhere. And I know we struggle sometimes. We see the sin that's in people's lives and we see it pushed in our faces all the time. And we struggle with that because it it took our Saviour to the cross, that sin. And we see the, the, the way this world is like, the, like a, a choppy sea, like the seas are, that, that are rough. And we look at that and we say, wow, I, I know a few of us that are just waiting to go home. Um, but let's look at why we should be cheerful even now. Matthew 14:22 says, and straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. And to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto, him, unto them, walking on the sea, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a Spirit. And they cried out with fear. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Now, who likes boats here? Who's been in a boat? Who likes boats? Big boats? boats, The bigger the better? (laughs) Maybe not these days. Um, <laughs> but sailing or going on a boat, right, can be a very it can be a very enjoyable thing. If you've ever been, you know, cruising down the river or something like that, and um, and some people love that. Some people go, like they love they love going fishing off a boat. It's just very tra- it can be very very tranquil. Okay, one of those things that that some people absolutely enjoy. Um, and sometimes doing it with friends is even better. Huh? When you're with your friends on a boat. On a river, if you haven't tried it, maybe give it a go one of these days, okay? Maybe we'll do a church thing on a boat. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because you're, you're thinking of people falling off, aren't you? Yeah. So, no, not in the sea, no, no, not in the sea. <laughs> on a lake, even that, even better. Yeah, very shallow water. <laughs> so here we have the disciples, they all get into a boat, they're all together. And they had just finished a very, very busy time. They had been with multitudes of people, and something very special had happened during this time. Jesus had fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fishes, right? So, can you imagine at the end of this, Jesus goes, All right, Jesus says to them, You guys get on that boat. I want you to go across the other side. He goes, I'm going to go and pray for a while, and I'll catch up with you on the other side. So, they all get in the boat. Can you imagine the excitement? I mean, what are these guys talking about? They're talking about, Oh, did you see that? You know, did you see that with a few fish, it was just multiplying in my hand. Can you imagine the conversation with these guys? Can you imagine the excitement, the adrenaline? That would have been an amazingly memorable time for them. Their excitement would have been through the roof. I mean, they'd just finished ministering to thousands and thousands of people and they'd, they'd watched Jesus, you know, preach to them and, they, and they'd seen these amazing things. And that must have been, you know, when you get that, you're at that exhausted phase, like you're probably, you're worn out, but you've still got the excitement. And so the adrenaline's still running and you still, still want to, you know, keep on going. But they're in a boat together and they're, and they, you know, they're all uh, fantastic. But soon the adrenaline starts wearing off when it starts getting dark and the wave starts getting beating against the boat. They start getting more and more concerned as things start getting more and more um, turbulent. And the excitement turns to exhaustion and the happiness and optimism begins to turn to fear very quickly. And their master's not with them. He's up on a mountain somewhere. And they're in the middle of, a, of, of, this, of the sea and things are start, starting to go uh, pretty bad. You know, I wonder, and, and, that's, and that's, this is the way, the way it is in life. Ever wondered, ever noticed in your life when something really, really good happens to you? or you've done something amazing for the Lord, or, or some, God's done something amazing for your life, or he's answered a prayer, and you're all excited about the way God's answered that prayer, and then the very next thing that comes along is the exact opposite. And we go from up there to down there. You know what I mean? The excitement doesn't last too long, does it? You know, the, the joy and the happiness. Hey, you know, the Lord and then as soon as something goes wrong, oh, no, no, now what? Now you've got to go chasing after that thing. Isn't it our lives? I'll like are like that and then like... And that's what it would have been like for the disciples. They went from exciting, excited and huge. All of a sudden now, within a few hours, literally within a few hours, to dread and fear. And I wonder, because it says, it says that Jesus came to them on the water. Right? He walked in the water to them. I wonder... Because this is about 3 o'clock in the morning. Right? Now, they'd left in the evening. And they're stuck in the middle at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's dark. The waves and winds roaring all over the place. And here Jesus comes to them at 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay? He, comes, he comes to the boat and they see him coming towards them. But I wonder how long he was actually following them for. Listening to their conversation. Because it doesn't say all it says is that the fourth watch, that they were actually, um, or the third watch, I think it is here, where is it, the fourth watch of the night, which is about three o'clock in the morning, right? Um, it says that he came to them. Well, between that, he was, he was on a mountain in the evening time by himself, and now it's three o'clock in the, in the morning, and he's approaching them. But I wonder how long he was following them for. But either way, whether he was with them or whether he was still back at the mountain and, and, uh, and flew there, he knew what their conversation was he knew what they were talking about what they were excited about and how that conversation started turning around to being more and more and more fearful i'm sure he did he knew this their conversation he knew their circumstance and this is an amazing thing if you think about it they'd had no idea jesus was walking to them no idea that all they knew is at that particular point or just before they saw him but they were alone in that boat. And they were fearful about what was about to come. How could they have imagined ever that Jesus would have walked to them on that water? Would you have, it would not even come into your mind that Jesus could have just walked toward them. It was something they wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have thought at all. But yet, they see his figure walking towards them. And here comes Jesus. How can it be Jesus? Can you imagine their conversation? What's that? Who's that? What are you talking about? There's someone walking over there. No, what are you talking? You've gone, you've gone crazy. Make sure you hold down that, that uh, sail over there, boy, or, or batten down those hatches. What are you talking about? Is a person walking over here? And then they, they all look and they say, is that Jesus. And then it says, it's, it's interesting the way they, um, the, the way they respond, because they thought it was a ghost, right? Because what physical man can walk on water? I mean, you're, you're heavy, you're going to sink, right? So they start, it says they start panicking, and then the exact words are, they cried out for fear. I wonder what that would have sounded like, to have 12 grown men crying out. Any takers there? Anyone screamed their lungs out before? But can you imagine twelve guys? And these are these are hardy, fish and These are these guys aren't aren't you know? These are these are these guys are who've lived on the uh, on a boat, and that's, all of a sudden they start screaming when they see Jesus walking towards them because they think that it's actually uh, a, a ghost, and then they hear his voice, and they hear his voice, and he and he says, "Be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid." Now, those, that voice would have been so comforting at the right time. And this, this verse should give us great comfort um, because he does it. Look at the, the very first words of, of verse 27. It says, but straightway Jesus spake unto them. You know, as soon as they started screaming, thinking it was a ghost, Jesus goes, hey, 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 Be cheer. it's me. He didn't wait. You know, if it was me, I would have probably gone, ooh. (laughs) They would probably have screamed a bit longer if it was me. And then I would have laughed at it, right? But not Jesus. Jesus says immediately, He doesn't wait. He doesn't want them fearful. He immediately responds and says, be of good cheer. It's, it's me. It's I. Don't be afraid. Lovely words. Isn't it amazing to know that Jesus is with you anywhere you might be? Anywhere. Anywhere that you may find yourself in life. You may be on the, a choppy sea. You may be in a hospital bed. You may be on top of the world from the world's point of view. Jesus is there. If you can walk on water to get to his disciples, now he can get to you anywhere, anytime, and he's everywhere with us. That's good reason to be a good cheer, isn't it? We don't have to see Jesus walking toward us in that darkness. We know that he's with us. Your circumstances may be dark. Your outlook may be bleak. Your heart may be filled with fear. But Jesus is always with you. There in the midst of whatever storm that you may face in life. He's always there. Sometimes we don't hear his voice. Sometimes we look at our circumstances and we don't see him. We see a ghost. And we scream. And we don't realise that he's there with us, not wanting us to fear And we we lose focus. But Jesus always tells us be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. Jesus is a picture of calm in the midst of a turbulent world. He is our anchor in the midst of a roaring and raging sea. If Jesus is with us, there is no prospect that our boat will ever overturn, it will never ever sink. And if that boat is a picture of our salvation we will never ever fear, we should never ever fear that that boat's going to go under because it won't. I speak this spiritually because we're often so fixated on the things of the world that we think that if we lose our job, lose our home our reputation or our health that our boat is overturning. That our boat's Going to capsize and the world is going to be over. But you know what? When you look at those things, those temporal things compared to spiritual and eternal things, that's not the boat. That's a little dinghy that's 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 being dragged behind. Do you understand? The boat that we are in is the boat of Jesus, and that never sinks. And there is something that's an interesting thing here, because if you look at verse 32. There's something else that we can learn. Is that, and when, and so, so when Jesus was, was, um, was approaching them, the storm was still raging. When Peter then recognised them and said, if it's you, let me call me out to you, the storm was still raging. There's another, that's another lesson just there. But then it says that, verse 32, And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And this is a picture of having a Christ-centred life. If you think that Christ is outside of your life, if, he, if he's outside there, well, then your boat's be can be very rocky. But if Jesus is in the boat, if you understand that Jesus is in the boat with you, all of a sudden your whole world is at peace. The wind will die down. Because Jesus is The Prince of Peace. And if you have him in the boat with you, if you recognise that he's in the boat with you, you can be confident and lean on him. If Jesus is the centre of your life, then your whole life can be at peace, even though the world around you may be stormy. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says... In Romans fourteen eight, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. You know what? Even death can't separate us from Him. So everything in between perfect life and death, and every, all that spectrum, all the way in between that, He's there with us. Nothing can separate us from Him. Regardless of what type of life you have, Regardless of what circumstances you are in, regardless of what the world's doing outside or around us, you can be at perfect peace if you understand that Christ is in the boat with you. He's in the boat. There's no chance of it actually ever capsizing. Let's go to the last one John chapter 16, verse 32. John chapter 16, verse 32. This is the third time Jesus is recorded as saying these words. Be of good cheer. The third time in the Gospels. John 16, 32. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The disciples were in the upper room with Jesus here, his 12 closest friends, his confidants. They had been with him for three years watching him trying to imitate him listening to his preaching watching the amazing love and grace that he had for people around him observing and being witnesses of the miracles that he did and now he was telling them that that world was coming to an end that things were not going to be the same again in fact he says the time has now come That this journey that they had walked together for three years was going to come to a dramatic climax and they were not going to stand they were not going to be able to stand up in the face of the onslaught but they were going to abandon him they were going to run they were going to leave him alone how would you like it if you were one of those 12 Imagine you're sitting around having that, 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 that supper together and Jesus says, you know what? Apart from the guys who are going to betray me, you're all going to abandon me. The whole lot of you. I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to go to my death on a cross and not one of you is going to be there to back me up. You're all going to run. How would you feel? I wouldn't feel too good, to be honest with you. And I'd be waiting for the next thing. I'd be waiting for a clip over the years saying after all this time you guys can't even stand with me. And they couldn't even pray with him for an hour. Remember he invites them out the three, he invites them out and says pray with me because (laughs) this is a pretty hard time for me. He goes pray with me. He goes and prays goes back to see them, they're all asleep. They couldn't pray with him. They couldn't stand with him. They abandoned him. And he told them all that before they even got to that point. So Jesus doesn't meet his words. What he said exactly happened. But is Jesus upset with them? Does Jesus say, it's not fair. All the effort I've put into you, you should be able to back me up. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> he says the exact opposite. Instead of saying to them, you bunch of no-hopers, I should have picked 12 other guys. He says, he says something very, very different. But then again, he's preparing them for this. He's preparing them for this hour and he's telling them exactly what's going to transpire. And once again, that proves who he was because he knew what was coming and he knew exactly how they would respond and he knew the hearts of men. Look at, look at verse 1 in John chapter 16. Just go back a little bit because this sets the, the, the groundwork. He's preparing their hearts for what they're going to come up against. But he knows they're going to fail. Verse uh, Chapter 16 verse 1 says, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues Yea, the time cometh that whoever killeth you, whosoever killeth you, will think that he doeth God's service. Look at at verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice when they kill him. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He knows they're going to lament. He knows they're going to cry. He knows they're not going to get the full picture in their head of what's going on. All they know is the master that they've been serving and following those three years, the one that they love so much and they've experienced love from, all they know is that he's going to his death and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be, he's going to be hung like a common criminal and they're going, to come, they're going to come after us now too. That's what they're thinking in their minds. But look at the result So that's leading up to this particular passage. And Jesus says, there's there's going to come a time now you all are going to abandon me. You're going to abandon me by myself, but I'm not going to be alone. I've got the Father with me. That's all he needed. But he says in verse 33, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? For someone who's about to be betrayed, you know, Peter goes, no, I'm not going to betray you. I'll go to my death for you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. <laughs> and even to a little girl, you're going to deny me. And he did. But I'm telling you all these things because I want you to have peace. And where do you find that peace? In him. In him you have that peace. Even though they were were going to abandon him, he goes, in me you're going to have this peace. How bad would you feel? But yet in him, he was offering them that peace that they could have. And this is what Jesus offers to all those who will put their faith in him. In this world, we will have tribulation. There's a promise. There was a promise to them and it's a promise to us. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Might be the coronavirus, might be, who knows, whatever else is coming. Yeah, we may start seeing persecution and, and, uh, and, and of the church. We don't know. Jesus promises that we will have persecution, but he also promises that in him we can have peace. And he promises to all those who have put their faith in him because he is the prince of peace. He can bring peace to those who are... F- who are facing a world turning upside down. And as the disciples were about to find out, after having their beloved master torn away from them and undergo the most terrible torture and death, they could experience his peace too. And the, the promise that Jesus made to his disciples applies to us today. That in this world, we can find peace in him. And we have a lot to be cheerful about. A lot to be cheerful about. And you know why we can be cheerful? Look at what he says in, this, in verse 33. Be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. I've won. I won. And because he won, we win. We can't lose. That's why we can be cheerful. The devil has been defeated. And Jesus won. He's defeated sin. He's defeated temptations. He's defeated the devil, the grave and death itself and hell. He won the victory for us. And in, in what he's won, we have won too. Because he now grants us that victory. He puts that, that medal around our neck. <laughs> he puts that crown upon our heads and says, You know, because you've trusted me, because I won, you've won too and I'm giving this to you. There's a lot of good reasons to be cheerful, to be of good cheer. So let me conclude. Always remember, in any circumstance in life, whether in good times or in bad, that as a child of God, you can be of good cheer. Good cheer, because our sins have been forgiven. Good cheer, because God continues to bestow his love and his grace upon us, and will display us as, as a showcase of that grace and love throughout all of eternity. Good cheer. Because Jesus is always with us. Even in the stormiest times, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Our ship will never sink and Jesus guarantees it. We should always remember that Jesus, to have that peace, to acquire that peace, is to have him at the centre of our lives. Make your life, you want peace in your life, revolve your life around him. Does that make sense to everyone? If you want peace in your life, then you make your life revolve around him. Don't make him revolve around you. Does that make sense? Because in that situation where you have him as your, you know, we'll have Jesus there, you know, church on a Sunday morning, that's that's good, that's fine. You know what I mean? I'll say a couple of prayers here and I'll do a bit of Bible reading over there. You know, that's lovely revolving around me, isn't it? Because it fits into my life and my world. But Jesus says that he is the world. He is the centre of our existence. So you want peace? Then revolve your life around him. And you'll have that peace. And finally, we should be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. He won never to be defeated, never to die again. And because of him, we have that victory as well. Never be motivated by fear in your life. Don't let fear motivate the things that you do because the Bible tells us that we should be motivated by his love. In everything you do, be motivated by him, by his love and his grace, and you will have that peace in the stormiest of times. Now, if you have that peace, if you are of good cheer, and you've made Jesus the centre of your life, if you are saved this morning, now go into the world and tell them. Go and tell them what you have. Go and tell them the good news of salvation and show them what it means to have Jesus in your life. God bless you.